Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, I'm Al Emmett, and I'm glad to join the other hosts here at the New Books Network. We believe we bring you insights from authors who have written useful and informative books with real insights. In most cases, in future segments, I'll talk to authors of factual investment and financial books. That's because as a journalist and author, I usually work in factual financial news and analysis. Recently, however, I've noticed an apparent increase in books that wrap a real-world financial issue into a fictional novel, thereby allowing the author to make a personal statement. Today, I'm going to talk to one such author about his book. Before the Madoff scandal, many individuals may not have completely understood the meaning of Ponzi. Simply put, in a Ponzi scheme, a fraud artist creates an illusion of a successful investment and pays returns to investors by using money from subsequent investors rather than genuine profit actually earned by the investment. The scheme entices new investors with promises of unrealistic returns and needs constant inflows of cash to keep the fraud in operation. Charles Ponzi became famous or infamous for using the scheme in the 1920s, but the technique is actually centuries old. At some point, with Bernard Madoff, the scheme collapses and badly burns many of its investors. Most often, the victims of a Ponzi scheme either swallow their losses or do what they can to regain some of their money through the courts. Ron McCabe took a different approach and wrote a novel entitled Betrayed, focusing on the aftermath of the collapse of the Ponzi scheme. Ron and his wife lost about a million dollars in a scheme that supposedly paid investors from the profits of real estate projects in Arizona. In actual fact, investors, such as the returns, such as they were, came from money flowing in from new investors, which is, of course, the classical Ponzi strategy. Overall, this particular Ponzi scheme took in about 700 investors. The McCabe's lost their million dollars, and at the age of 65, Ron felt it was too late to start a new business and to make money that way. So he wrote Betrayed, which focuses on the losses of Wally and Poppy Stroud in a Ponzi scheme. As a result of their losses, Poppy Stroud commits suicide and Wally sets out to get revenge. And he does get his revenge in several horrific chapters. To research the book, McCabe spoke to about 200 of the 700 investors in the same scheme and created a cast of fictionalized fraud artists and their victims. I'm on the line now from Sonora, Mexico. Good morning, Ron. Good morning, Al, and thank you for inviting me onto your show today. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about uh, 
Ponzi uh, uh, financial fraud in general, and, and especially my novel. Thank you for having me on. That's good. I'm glad to talk to you. Before we go into the book itself, let's chat about the genre. Neither of us has an exact count, but does it appear to you that we're seeing an increasing number of books that take a real-life financial fiasco and wrap it into a financial novel? Sorry, wrap it into a fictional novel? Uh, I, I think that that's true, uh, and and here's why, at least in my perception, um, and it's not uh, uh, it's not without precedent too. Remember, uh, not all that long ago, uh, a movie was made about the Michael Milliken uh, um, uh, Wall Street uh, fraud, uh, uh, close to seven hundred billion dollars. It was a uh, 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 it, it was a fantastic kind of thing, and then, and then not long after uh, that came the, uh, uh, the Michael Douglas uh, uh, movies, Wall Street. Um, the thing with the thing with uh, uh, Ponzi and, and financial fraud in general is that they are they typically set in the halls of big money, fantastic figures, uh, uh, people who uh, uh, who live uh, elitist uh, lives of excess and. It creates a it creates a, a fertile ground for a, for a novelist to wrap a story around. Uh, you combine that with the fact that we've been uh, smack in the middle, uh, oh, let's say just after the turn of the new century uh, um, here in the U.S. Uh, with the kinds of economic problems that we have, and what what uh, transpires is is that many people who were on the fringe of um, uh, well, I, for lack of a better way of putting it, uh, a, a strong moral compass. As the economy begins to suffer and they can't make profits and, and run businesses in a, in a traditionally honest way, some of them begin to get out onto the onto the fringe of of, uh, uh, of business, and and it, it isn't a far fall uh, from that. To end up in uh, uh, end up in illegal operations, and Ponzi is the absolute perfect kind of uh, setup for these guys. So, um, so I think you have a, a combination of, of a bad economy. People uh, it can't, uh, are not making it uh, in a traditional way, and some of these people feel uh, a sense of entitlement. They're entitled to have this big life and and and. Uh, 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 and these successful businesses, and when it can't come about in, in uh, a traditionally legal way, then they turn to something illegal. And Ponzi is a is a perfect uh, kind of setup. So I think I think it's a combination, Al, of these things that contribute that are contributing now. Because if you will take a uh, look, uh, uh, SEC archived uh, complaints uh, over uh, over last year, 2011, and I'm sure it will be going out in 2012 as well. Uh, Ponzi fraud is on the rise. It's, it is not, by any stretch of the imagination, a phenomenon that's going away. And um, and if you're going to have that, then I think novelists like myself are going to take advantage of using those settings uh, to bring uh, uh, to bring stories uh, uh, that people uh, will be uh, excited to read, but also have a, a teaching moment in it. So, uh, so, so the SEC keeps a running file of Ponzi. Complaints. Well, what they uh, what SEC does is SEC uh, um, uh, lists on their website the number of complaints of financial fraud uh, uh, that are filed on a monthly basis, 
uh, and um, uh, anyone can go onto their website and and look at them. And most of them, uh, as they are public record, most of the complaints you can uh, you can read the nature of the complaint, and it isn't uh, it doesn't take much analysis to see that Ponzi crime is is on the rise. Hmm. As an author, do you get something by wrapping the story into a fictional novel that you wouldn't have gotten if you had just written a factual book about Ponzi schemes? Is there something more that you got by fictionalizing this one? Yeah, from my standpoint, uh, well, uh, let's take this personally as it relates to Betrayed. In this specific case... Uh, there were, uh, uh, this is still an open investigation by the FBI, though it is years, uh, past now. And the one, you, the one you were involved in. The one I was involved in. That's okay. exactly right. And so when I went on to write Betrayed, uh, obviously I, uh, I did not want to libel myself. So, um, so it was necessary to couch this novel, uh, in a, uh, in a fictional setting. Uh, that said, uh, I would, I would argue, uh, as a novelist that, uh, taking a real life, uh, crime, uh, of, of, uh, uh, financial fraud, uh, Ponzi or otherwise, allows an author to, to really, uh, expand his story, uh, in a uh, in a nonfiction setting, you're you're pretty much tied to the uh, uh, to the specifics of what took place in a in a fraud, and um, I suppose if that if that genre is, is your bent, well then uh, you know you'll find a way to make an interesting book out of that. But I, as a writer, I I'm not interested in in writing things that come off uh, uh, as textbook. I I wanted to yes, I want there to be a teaching moment. I want you to take something away uh, that's that's useful. So in that in that regard, I couch and I portray the the Ponzi fraud exactly as the complaints were filed. But as uh, uh, as the interaction of the characters takes place and the and and the uh, uh, the psychosis that begins to uh, uh, take place in the protagonist in in this novel. Um, uh, I wanted to I wanted to expand the base of the story because what happens when when Ponzi or any other kind of fraud for that matter is is uh, reported is the, the story is uh, is based on the perpetrators very rarely and I'll, I'll give you two examples take the Madoff case which you mentioned earlier in your show um, how many stories have you heard about the Thousands of tens of thousands of people who lost everything, and many of these people were in their 80s and 90, 90 years of age. They you're, lost you're right. everything, but there we were no very, stories about that. Yeah, we heard very few stories. I mean, there yeah. were the classical celebrities. I think we heard about Steven Spielberg and some of those folks who lost money. But you're right; we didn't get a clear picture of the of the. Uh, Followed, and yes, and 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 uh, that was also true with uh, with the Enron uh, uh, debacle, which was also a classical Ponzi uh, uh, case. So when I set out to do uh, to do uh, the novel Betrayed, what I wanted to do was uh, I wanted to take a different angle. I wanted I wanted the story told from the perspective of the victim. 
So, who was betrayed? Was it just Wally and Poppy Stroud, or is it the system that's betraying people who believe in it? Who's who's actually getting betrayed here? Well, you know, in in the novel, obviously, uh, it is it is the protagonist and his wife. I mean, they are the specific focus of the story, so obviously they're the they are the people that were betrayed. But let's but let's be clear. Uh, we have we have. Uh, uh, well, without without calling it empirical, I will tell you that roughly two million families in America have been treated to this to this kind of uh, 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 devastation. That's a huge betrayal. You're, you're, betrayal. You're, you're, you're saying that roughly two million American families have lost money in Ponzi schemes Absolutely. over roughly how long? Well. Uh, uh, Let's just take it. That would be uh, from about the uh, about the end of the uh, 20th century. Just just let's take it the last decade of the of the 20th century okay. and to date in the 21st century. As I say, I didn't. I have not. That is not an empirical study that I've done. But I mean, I can do simple arithmetic. It doesn't take a genius to uh, uh, to go to the SEC site and uh, I mean, they specify the number of of uh, people who've been affected in these uh, in each of these frauds, and uh, you you can go down the list, and it doesn't take very long to add up the very large numbers of people who are touched by these frauds. Uh, I don't know how many were affected, for example, in the Madoff situation, but you take uh, the case that I was involved in around 700 investors. Just recently, this, uh, earlier this year, um, a, um, uh, there was a federal uh, suit brought against a fellow by the name of Douglas Vaughn over in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Vaughn took in around 600 investors. Uh, the, the case of Alan Stanford. I mean, you, you can go down the list, Al, and it just doesn't take very, uh, uh, very much to add the numbers, and they grow large. Mm. Not every. I'm not saying that every single investor is wiped out, but I'm saying families that are that are touched in a meaningful way with a very, very large number in this country. And in terms of your own situation, uh, as I mentioned, you and, and your wife lost about a million dollars in a real-life scheme. That's right. How did you f feel when you found out? I mean, did somebody send you a note, or did the police call you, or what happened? Yeah, well, what, uh, in, in, uh, in our case, uh, a few days before uh, Thanksgiving, back in 2007, we received a letter from the, uh, from the investment company, that, uh, uh, the management company, mm -hmm. and uh, it, it, it simply said that they were temporarily suspending uh, payments uh, uh, to investors. Uh, we were receiving a, a, a monthly uh, a monthly payout on our, our, uh, our investment with them, uh, as were all of the investors, mm -hmm. and uh, and they suddenly suspended payments. Well, uh, um, there was no immediate admission to what had happened, but uh, it didn't take me long to uh, to figure out that something was amiss, and uh, and I launched my own investigation at that point into what was going on and it was then that I I just had a sick feeling in my stomach. I went immediately to the authorities uh, and, uh, uh, and filed complaints and this thing took about three years to to unfold. It, it, was, it was complicated 
uh, convoluted uh, and, and very, very difficult. And this is a point I'd like to make because uh, many people think that these that Ponzi schemes are so obvious and that investors are overreaching so far that first the invest uh, uh, the investor is greedy. Obviously, I mean, I got burned in a Ponzi scheme, so I must be I must be a greedy investor. And it must have been so obvious that I obvious that also I'm I'm not very intelligent. I'm here to tell you that that is patently untrue. Well, <laughs> you can argue with that. So, so the, 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 sti- the, the stereotype of the of the investor yeah, is exactly what you're challenging. Right. Yeah. But on a but on a on the more serious note, I will tell you that even federal regulators uh, have a hard time spotting these things, and uh, uh, and they all they don't always appear as overreaching kinds of investments. For example, here we were talking about about eight percent interest on our uh, on our investment and when properties would sell out we would share in a small percentage of the capital growth over a four year period of, of, uh, of a project mm-hmm. so we might we might make as much as 10 or 12% on the overall project i'm sorry but that is not overreaching that is not a greedy scenario for real estate type investments wow. i've been a real estate investor since the 70s and i was a, 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 i was uh, for a, a short period of time i was even a developer to make to make 10 or 12% return on a, on real estate property over a, uh, over a period of four or five years is not, uh, this does not fall in the category of 28% returns on, on fake uh, certificates down in some banana republic. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate how, how it can appear that, uh, oh, well, if you got burned by a Ponzi scheme or you deserved it, you should have seen it, you were greedy, you were overreaching. Um, and I think that there is a mindset like that uh, uh, out there. And unfortunately, uh, it's that very mindset that I think sets up people who consider themselves savvy investors to be burned because they think it's always the other guy. They think it's always the uh, the investor who's not astute enough. It's the guy who didn't diversify enough. Um, do you, do you, that's wrong. Did you put much of yourself into Wally Strode? Well, uh, the, the characters throughout uh, throughout the trade are are a legitimate composite of uh, of uh, people that I know have known. Uh, uh, where the protagonist and his wife are concerned, those two people are specifically a composite of the 200 uh, investors that I came to know very well and interviewed over a three-year period of time. That I was uh, that I was involved as an activist uh, in. The, in the fraud that I was involved in. So you so, con- you contacted to research the book. You contacted roughly 200 out of the 700 folks who were um, burned in the same Ponzi scheme that you were involved in. Yeah, actually, did you, did I, actually, you get the I cooperation? Think I mean, when you contacted them and said, "Hi, I'm Ron McCabe. I want to talk to you," would some of them have? preferred not to talk to you? Many of them preferred not to talk to me. Some of them accused me of uh, lying to them about uh, uh, about what these guys have done. Uh, I want to back up just a moment and, and tell you, uh, uh, give you uh, listeners just a little bit of an understanding here. First of all, this company had been in business roughly 20 years. Okay? Mm-hmm. And they had, this business model was in place uh, going back into uh, back into the previous uh, uh, before the turn of the century, 
these guys had been active. And, uh, and they had, the business model had been honest. Uh, many of these investors had been with these guys for 10, 15 years or more. So to learn that, that in 2004, when they, when their company began to fail and they, instead of, uh, uh, confessing this to their investors, turned it into a Ponzi scheme, um, when I came along to begin telling people that this is what had happened, uh, this is what I was finding in, in public record, uh, uh, that none of these projects were brought to fruition, that their money, as they paid their money in, uh, this company was using that money to pay out older investor, investors who were, who were due to be paid out of their, their projects. And the only way anyone was getting paid was by, the, because they were bringing in new investors. People actually called me a liar. Actually yeah, accused I can imagine. I can imagine. Actually accused me of defacing, trying to, uh, uh defame uh, these men. They just did not want to believe this. I think I would think that that is a common. You can correct me, but that would be a common reaction of uh, victims of a Ponzi scheme. They don't want to admit it. Uh, I, I, would, I would think that some people just want to forget, it and others would try to pursue it through the courts. But you decided to write a book. Um, why did you go down that route instead of just trying to take them to court? Well, uh, uh, keep in mind, I, I, I did try to, I, I did everything I could, uh, that I feel that I uh, legitimately could. Uh, let me take you down that track. Um, as I said, uh, I was an activist. I was a leading activist for a three-year period. Uh, I worked with the FBI. I worked with the Arizona uh, Attorney General's Office. I worked with the Arizona Corporation Commission Frauds Division, the Arizona Real Estate Commission. Uh, I hired uh, I hired a law firm uh, to put together a class action suit uh, uh, against these guys. I I literally spent thousands of hours and a, a tremendous amount of the reserve uh, assets that I had left. And um, it was, uh, it, it, we were a full three years into this when um, one, uh, one FBI agent said to me, he said, you know, we've uncovered 250 underlying companies that these guys have moved money into. Mm-hmm. And uh, so here, here's what happened. It isn't as if they took our money and went down and put it in the local bank. They moved that money into uh, convolutions that were next to impossible to follow that were going to take years to unravel. That's item one. Item two, they were buried very deeply in, in uh, trust instruments that would make it very, very difficult uh, to identify as specifically their assets. So, uh, so uh, what I was being told, uh, both by the FBI and by my own law firm, were, yes, we can pursue this, but you're all going to have to keep putting money into this thing uh, uh, to support the, uh, the expense of, of finding the trail of this money. These guys are acting like paupers. Uh, uh, even the, even the m- multi-million dollar homes that they were living in were owned by trusts, not by them. If you looked at them on a, on a financial statement, they were worth exactly zero. So, so, so was it was it because of that that you decided to take the route to the book that what the well, blind alleys yeah, that you and, were finding? 
Yeah, in in my particular case, I I uh, I, I came to a day. Uh, uh, I think about uh, four years into into the quest uh, for this thing, and I and I looked at what assets I had left. Uh, I looked at my age. I looked at my mental health, uh, and I thought about that uh, long and hard, and um, and I decided that uh, even even if we were able to prevail on these guys. The odds that I would recover anything meaningful out of it were very, very limited. So, uh, for me, it was a very personal decision, but uh, uh, I decided that I, I needed to take what was left of my life and 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 uh, turn it turn it as positive as I could as I could make it. Did, now, did, I you, did you get some? Did you get time. some kind of some kind of um, release or some kind of? Uh, gratification in, in putting this into a novel? Oh, uh, other than one hopes the, the book will sell, but I mean, did you get some kind of personal satisfaction? Uh, oh, it was, uh, it was tremendously cathartic, and that's one of the things about writing fiction that I enjoy. You know, you can take, you can take, uh, a, you know, a writer takes, uh, takes his own, his own experiences or her own experiences and, and turns, the, turns it into a story that, uh, first is satisfying to the writer. I mean, I hope that when people read Betrayed that they're, that they're enjoying uh, uh, not just a, uh, a, a dark uh, revenge-filled uh, 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 story of uh, bad guy, a uh, good guy chases bad guys. It, it uh, certainly is. It certainly tale. is a revenge tale. It is. We won't give it away, but uh, suffice to say that it does turn, the book turns on a, on a revenge tale. Yes, there's no question about it. It's 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 uh, it's stunningly uh, um, violent in the in its resolution. That said, uh, there is a thread throughout the book because I layered the book very very heavily with with themes that had bothered me through this whole process. It wasn't just the Ponzi scheme, Al, that I wanted the story that I wanted to tell. I wanted to tell the, the story of what happens in terms of the mental health of, of victims of. Of financial fraud. I mean, did did any of the two hundred folks that you spoke to mentally disintegrate in the way that Wally Stroud in your book disintegrates? I mean, they yeah. may not have gone to the lengths that he goes to or went to, but I mean, clearly Wally Stroud disintegrates in the book. No question about it. His journey is very dark, and the answer to that uh, is a resounding and and sad yes. So in real life, some of the 200 that you met experienced some degree of mental disintegration, and and you borrowed from that into into uh, characterizing Wally Stroud. Is that that correct? Yes, that's yes, that's a fair that's a fair uh, uh, characterization of of what took place. Did you did you have any trouble? Did you have any trouble sort of deciding? When you were constructing the narrative, did you have any trouble deciding how much of yourself you wanted to put into Wally or any of the other characters? Yes, I did. I struggled with that a lot because uh, there there was a tendency to want to tell uh, R.P. McCabe's story, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and I think that that's dangerous for for a novelist. Uh, uh, certainly, uh, there is a there is a, 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 a 
uh, a part of me that was infused in that story. I think that's inescapable for uh, for writers. At the same time, nobody wants to hear the poor me, oh, I lost everything story. The last thing in the world I that, uh, that I want to do, that I wanted to do when I set out to write the novel, or that I want to do now, I'm not interested in garnering anyone's sympathy. I don't want anyone feeling sorry for me. And so, uh, so as I wrote uh, uh, Betrayed, I was very careful not to make this, not to make Wally Stroud R.P. McCabe. Now, that said, are there nuances of Wally Stroud that are R.P. McCabe? Uh, absolutely. Mm, I love lunch in the evening, and I especially love good red wine, and I love, uh, and I love cooking. So you, so throughout the novel. So which fact, Wally was, Stroud does, like, too. Yes. Yeah, in fact, I was roundly criticized by one reader, uh, not long ago in a review, in which she said, you know, does the guy have to tell me about, uh, the wine that he's drinking and what he's making for dinner? Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's personal taste. And of course, you know, a writer doesn't have the uh, luxury of trying to feed uh, uh, each of those things out. You write, you write a story that you know that uh, that you that defines how you how you tell stories. I mean, it's my voice that's right. the way I tell a story. So, so yes, there are nuances of Wally Stroud that are R.P. McCabe, but Wally Stroud is not R.P. McCabe. Right. We both know, and uh, I mean, I've written a book, a couple of books, although they're factual, not not fictional, but we both know that when an author sits down to write a book, it requires a huge amount of discipline and concentration. And you were, at the time, coming down from, I guess, the realization of what you had lost and maybe the frustration of talking to the authorities and whatever else went on, how do you shift from feeling burned, I guess, to the discipline that's necessary to construct a book? Well, first I will tell you it was not easy. Um, actually, uh, the uh, the idea to turn the grief. I'm gonna. I'm gonna tell you that I was really going through the pro- through a process of grief. Uh, while while you were actually doing the writing, or before the yeah, as as I as I started, I started with a, a, a pack of notes, and I was also uh, I also had a therapist at the time, and my therapist continually encouraged me to find catharsis uh, through my writing. Uh, she continually said to me, "Look." What I, uh, we would have these sessions in which I would talk about all these things that were, you know, how deeply they they bothered me, how uh, how ashamed of myself I felt, I, I suffered that. I, uh, there was a tremendous amount of guilt that I let this happen to myself. You know, you go through all of these uh, all of these processes, and she said to me all along, uh, right from the beginning, you need to use that energy to find your way out of this. And so I, I began, after some months, I began to take her advice, and I started I started a storyline. I mean, Betrayed wasn't always there. I mean, it, it, it was a process of evolution. It came about little bit by little bit, and, and, the, uh, and the momentum behind the novel began to move a little bit better and a little bit better. It took me two years to write this novel. The first thing I realized 
is that I could tell a story about the Ponzi fraud, the setup in the novel, the first nine chapters. That's easy. But when I got into the uh, the realm of of discussing the mental health uh, of these people, discussing the uh, the devastation of suicide, uh, um, all of the other themes that run through uh, uh, the novel, the uh, uh, the thing of international banking in the Cayman Islands, all of these things had to be researched because this was uh, uh, this was not inherent in my uh, in my uh, uh, knowledge base. No, um, most of us wouldn't normally know about. Yeah, uh, what to do in the Cayman Islands and and uh, havens and all the rest of it. So we exactly. have your we have your therapist to to thank for the fact that you took the trouble to write the book. Yes, I think that's a, I think that's a fair assessment. Uh, it wasn't just her. I had a tremendous amount of of uh, support system underneath me. I had another friend who was uh, uh, of thirty years who was uh, a, a psychopathologist, and he contributed heavily to uh, 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 pushing me in that direction. Uh, I have uh, I have a lot of friends in the uh, in the legal and medical community who've been uh, dear personal friends over over my. My lifetime, and they all uh, kind of came together with this idea that uh, uh, I could I could find a way uh, uh, to catharsis and to doing something that would make me feel fulfilled again. Because you know that's another thing. You know, it, it you 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 cross the landscape of a lifetime. Now you put in your 35, 40 years, and uh, and you built something, and 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 you define yourself by that. And when that's ripped out from under you, uh, there's this giant feeling of of worthlessness. I, what have I done? I haven't accomplished anything. And so uh, it's, it's very complicated what the, 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 uh, the psychological process that a victim goes through. Well, I, I, can, uh, I can imagine that. Um, yeah. But how, how, do you, how do you set that aside long enough to do a couple of hours of writing each day? Oh, I do more than a couple of hours. Of well, writing. I mean, however much time you spend writing. Yeah. How, how yeah. do you set aside... I mean, it, it's, it's a, it sounds like a terrific mental uh, challenge to say, I'm going to stop being a victim, I'm going to sit down, get into my notes and work on the structure and do 10 pages or whatever you choose to do yeah. on, a, on a given day. It strikes me as not being very easy to do that. Well, it, 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 you know, under the best circumstances, writers will tell you that it is not uh, an easy. Un, yeah, under the best of circumstances, it's not easy yeah. to do that. I mean, and then you uh, have to I put mean, you're aside. A writer, you're, you're a writer yourself. You know that, uh, uh, it, you know, when when things are all perfect in your world and you sit down to uh, to work and uh, uh, it, it can be it can be difficult because there's life is always impacting on you while you're doing this. Right. I think in, I think uh, the answer to your question is this. Um, I was I was deeply depressed. And this this event was uh, it was the primary focus in my life. And I saw at at a point uh, a few months into what I hoped was going to lead to a recovery for me, I saw that 
the vehicle for that uh, was was this book. And so I would I would tell you that uh, I, I was somewhat driven to get through this book because I saw it as uh, as representing the the end of of the pain that I was uh, feeling over having been suckered into this deal. So. Uh, every day that I sat down and worked on this novel, I kind of saw it as the process by which when I got to the end, I'd be better. I'd feel better. The, uh, this nightmare would be over for me. Now, did, it, did it work for you? Did that, did well, that happen? Uh, actually, I, I, uh, actually, I became so uh, engrossed in turning this into a bigger story that I think... I think there was a uh, almost a, uh, a, a catharsis by osmosis in the in the process because long before I came to the end of the novel, I was uh, I was excited about it. I was enthusiastic about the writing again. I was I was uh, uh, I was invigorated, and I was talking to my my friends about the progress I was making with the book, and and people were getting excited to to read the finished product, and. Uh, so I, 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 somewhere in the process, I be I I made it up over the top of the mountain. I don't know that uh, I don't know that I'll ever completely get over uh, what happened. It sounds it sounds like there were two things driving you. Stop me if I'm wrong. It sounds like there were two things that were driving you. One, the urge to have this therapy that you your therapist said you might have as an author. And two, it sounds like you had a wonderful support system around you while you were doing the the book. Is that a fair statement? That's absolutely a fair statement. And I would I would tell you that uh, uh, without without that support, it would have been a much different process. Uh, uh, you know, some days I'm not sure that uh, it, you know, it would have been possible for me to keep going the way that I did because it, it was a matter of picking up the phone, speaking with a friend. Uh, and, and talking about uh, talking through these things, yeah, I had a wonderful support system, and I'm and I'm very fortunate that all of them, uh, virtually all of these people were professionals. Uh, as I told you, I have lots of friends in the medical and in the legal community, and and so uh, uh, I could turn to these people, and and uh, it, yeah, the, the support system was was invaluable. You so so they, they supported you by what just being there. When you were thrashing around with Chapter Five or something, and you That's needed exactly somebody to right. talk to. That's exactly right. And when they, I was underst- writing- they understood your situation well enough to know that you Absolutely. needed somebody to talk to. Because it's a very, it's a very solitary job, apart from the fact that. Oh. Well, it's, you know, it's a, it's solitary, and B, you were thrashing around with a very personal situation as well. Yes. Now that that that's a that's an accurate characterization. Mm-hmm. And you know, uh, again, uh, the writing process as as writers, uh, when we when we aren't dealing with our personal demons, we're always dealing with something. And uh, and and the fact that you have uh, that you have people that you can talk to on a level that uh, that. Uh, know something about you, know about your background, but but more importantly, care about you, and will take the time. It's in, it's invaluable. I th- I think uh, I think that's a human condition, and I was very fortunate and very fortunate to have that. Is there is there a bit of 
implicit social comment in the book, and by that I mean uh, Wally, there, there are several references to Poppy watching Wally try to get somewhere by going to the authorities and being frustrated. Um, and there isn't a soul in the world who hasn't tried to do something and been frustrated by the authorities. Was that sort of implicit in your book? Yes, and, and it isn't just, it wasn't just in that example that you gave. I mean, for me, uh, one of the things I, I, I wanted to do was create, uh, fertile ground for social dialogue, uh, in this novel. I mean, I hold deregulation as, uh, uh, as a, as a primary, uh, contributing factor, uh, uh, to the rise of these Ponzi schemes. There are consequences for, uh, for these things. And I, uh, you know, it, that as well is implicit in the novel. I, I do raise, uh, as you go through this, this story, I, I try to raise a social consciousness and the ground to have, uh, a conversation, uh, uh, on these, on these subjects. So yes, absolutely. This is a frustration we all feel. I, I think whether you've been burned in a Ponzi scheme or whether you haven't been burned in a Ponzi scheme, I think these things uh, touch people. I think it gets across lines. We we all have demons of one sort or, or another. Um, uh, maybe as you read, maybe as one of uh, my readers uh, gets through Betrayed, maybe this isn't exactly their story, but I suspect that there are going to be uh, levels and striations within this novel that will that will strike a chord of familiarity and say, wait a minute, I I know how that feels. I think I I recognize that that, that touched me in a certain way. And yes, do you think the individuals who promote the Ponzi schemes? Do you think they're working on their victims' greed or their gullibility or their lack of investment knowledge or, or all three? I think there are two kinds of Ponzi perpetrators. <clears throat> the first kind, uh, the uh, the guy with the uh, the white uh, bucks on his feet and the uh, and the pale blue pants and a white uh, uh, belt and, uh, uh, and a pot belly hanging over and maybe a cigar uh, sticking out of his mouth. Uh, the stereotypical backroom uh, good old boy who's putting one all over on you. Um, those get, uh, those those kinds of people work work purely on the basis of greed. They uh, they and they look for a certain kind of investor that they somehow instinctively know that they can that they can pull in. And those and and that uh, scenario there that I'm describing, I think is. Uh, it is the stereotype that the overwhelming majority of us tend to think that Ponzi scheme hides in. And so therefore, uh, we all should be able to recognize it. We should all should be able to see it. And if you get caught in one of those things, shame on you. It was because of your own greed, right? Mm-hmm. Here's the other kind of Ponzi, uh, uh, perpetrator. Um, I, I'm going to have to take somebody on the national stage so that your listeners uh, really have something that they can look at and, and relate to. Bernard Madoff. Sure. He was the head of the NASDAQ for uh, I, I don't know how many years. He moved from that to a private investment company that he ran for 10 years, Al. 10 years. 
Federal investigators didn't find anything wrong. There was a whistleblower trying to tell them all along that there was something wrong, but even with that, they either didn't find it, didn't want to find it, couldn't find it, whatever the case may be. For 10 years, this went on. I firmly am convinced that Bernard Madoff did not start out to create a Ponzi scheme when he created his investment company. But somewhere along the line, his honest operation went bad. For whatever reason, his traders, uh, the, the, the investments that he'd gotten into, he suffered some big losses. We see this happen on Wall Street, not infrequently. They suffer a big loss, and they don't want to come out and tell anyone that this has happened, or that they don't want to admit that the loss was so devastating that it, it, it really they had to uh, um, uh, literally undo the portfolios of their of their key investors. So rather than do that, they borrow from one group of investors who have, and they, they and I use that term euphemistically, borrow. They take from one group of investors over here who have, who are not going to be looking to roll out anytime soon, and they use that money to shore themselves up with another group of investors who are getting close to having to be paid off. Right. And pretty soon that system begins to work easier and better than legitimately making an investment. And before they know it, they've morphed into a Ponzi scheme. I firmly believe that that's what took place with Bernard Madoff. That you're, you're, you're suggesting that it was kind of an evolution. He didn't start out to be a And Ponzi. those are the worst kinds. Those are the worst kinds. Those are the ones that the savvy investors, those are the ones that the guy that's sitting back listening to this uh, podcast are going to say, this guy... This guy's a loser. A sucker is born every day. He just got greedy. I'm here to tell you that that savvy investor who has that kind of mindset is the exact one who's set up to get nailed by the Ken Lays of this world, the Alan Sanfords of this world, the Bernie Madoffs of this world. He may not, that investor may not get burned in, uh, let's say, an Arizona investment of a, 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 a real estate uh, scam type deal. Yeah, he might be smart enough to stay out of that. But because of this very mindset that he can't get burned, he can't get had, he's the perfect target to be had. So, so are you, are you setting up your book as a kind of, apart from the, the fact that it's a very good novel, are you setting it up as a kind of warning to people about Ponzi schemes? Well, there is there is an element of that in there, isn't there? I mean, yes, uh, there there is a certain element because uh, I think that there are certain specific kinds of Ponzi schemes that, while they may not be apparent on the surface. If, uh, if potential investors are wary enough, they might save themselves from getting had. And uh, let me, let me be more specific about that. In, I, I, I would characterize virtually all real estate, managed real estate type investments that are not registered as REITs or, or, uh, come under, uh, even stronger oversight. You'd better explain what REITs are. Uh, a real estate investment trust, and these are and these are instruments that can be traded on uh, uh, in, in the uh, uh, in the marketplace in, right. on Wall Street. 
um, and they require an SEC filing and and uh, and uh, and the uh, creators of those investments are required to adhere to very strict uh, regulatory uh, processes uh, and reporting uh, and and their practices. But when you get down to the state level, uh, to take a state like Arizona or, well, let's go across the country. We can take Arizona, we can take Texas, we can take Georgia, we can take, uh, uh, Oklahoma, uh, the, uh, we can take the Carolinas. There are, there are states that are very specifically dangerous, uh, with, uh, when you get down to these, uh, uh these managed real estate types of investments. Now, why, why are the, why are those particular states dangerous? Well, because, uh, because their, uh, their legislative, uh, mindset in, in those states that I just mentioned right. are, are very pro-deregulation. Their attitude, uh, from a legislative, from a statutory standpoint is that government and regulation should stay out of small business. So they create fertile, ripe ground for these small scale, uh, uh, managed real estate investments to spring up. Now I'm not saying that that uh, because that is true, then necessarily they are all uh, they're all Ponzi schemes, or they're all illegal. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that the fact that you have virtually no registration requirements, you have no regulatory oversight in in those states that you mentioned. Yes, yeah, exactly okay. right. Uh, okay. They're very easy for these people to set up these kinds of uh, these kinds of schemes. California has it too, although California has stronger regulation, but I mean, you can go across the country and, and you can and you can match up the complaints on the SEC files in what states you see the majority of them, of them in. Mm-hmm. This is not rocket science. This is just simply a willingness to take the time to look. Well, apart, apart from the, the state of regulation in an individual state, if I were sitting in the, the holiday in at a session where investments are being sold or whatever scenario that takes place. What else, what other giveaways would one might want to encounter? Well, uh, the, um, the track record, uh, how long these guys have, uh, how long this, uh, this business model has been around. And you can't, uh, as I've said, uh, one that's been there uh, uh, for a, uh, uh, for a very long time, is still susceptible to to morphing into a Ponzi scheme. Right. Uh, the the other thing that uh, the other thing that uh, that people should look for is transparency. When you have uh, uh, an investment like that, and you find uh, a, some type of clause, uh, either in your documents or in the prospective documents that that you're looking at, that comes off as a typical privacy statement in which you have no right to access, know of, or be in contact with the other investors, you're now faced with a divide and conquer kind of scenario. Uh, I would, this is a, this is a, uh, a, a real tip off that these people are isolating, uh, uh, investors so that you can't hear from one investor to the next, uh, uh, insights that you, that might, uh, that might give you an indication that something is, something is going wrong. Um, there's that. 
Secondarily, you should be visiting every single one of the project properties that are uh, that are prescribed. Uh, this is a mistake that would be legitimate to point to me and 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 say, well, this was a failing that R.P. McCabe made. I made one due diligence trip to uh, to one of the properties. There were 40 different properties involved in this Ponzi uh, uh, scheme that I was involved in, and because. My specific money was not earmarked to go into those other projects. I didn't take the time to physically drive and get out of my vehicle, walk into, look at, uh, and inspect every one of those properties. Had I done that, I think I would have seen something. So this is a, you could, you could, here's an area you can legitimately accuse me, and I have to legitimately accuse myself of falling down on. So, so it's, it's the same old story. Be careful before you sign them. That, you have, you have that applies to, you know, any, any form of investment, really. Yes, absolutely right. And the other, and the other thing then is, is diversification. And I've been roundly, uh, 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 beaten up over that by uh, a number of people who commented on interviews that I've done on, on the national stage, uh, of late. Uh, but, you know, let's keep in mind, I, uh, you know, I'm willing to share, uh, uh, myself, uh, with my readers and people who are interested in, in, uh, uh, financial fraud and Ponzi and, and so forth. But, uh, uh, I have not, I have not under any, uh, circumstance, uh, laid out every single aspect of, of my investment life. Uh, what I had in this Ponzi scheme represented about uh, a third of my assets. What happened? What happened to the rest of them? Uh, uh, I've, I've not uh, I've not been uh, willing to come out and and lay all of that out uh, on the table. Uh, so I think sometimes people get the idea. Well, uh, this guy went all in every dime he had. Uh, that wasn't the case at all. But I will tell you that I was uh, I was a very very big real estate investor, and uh, and I don't need to tell you what happened to the real estate market. Uh, let me give you an example. On one property I owned in uh, in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, it was worth six hundred and ninety-five thousand dollars on the on the last day that I had it appraised. And uh, by the time uh, th- this real estate bubble had worked its way through Arizona, that property appraised for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And this was wow, this a- was a scenario that went throughout most of my income properties. This was kind of a perfect storm scenario for R.P. McCabe and his wife. Mm-hmm. It was wasn't only the Ponzi scheme. The Ponzi scheme was the icing on the cake, the crowning blow, because what that Ponzi scheme represented for R.P. McCabe and his wife was our liquid assets. That was those were that money, that million dollars was liquid. Um, our other holdings were all equity holdings. So you get a scenario where we had, uh, I, I mean, where the Ponzi scheme goes down, your liquidity is gone, and suddenly properties that uh, that you own are now worth uh, 50, 60, and 70% less, and you can't give them away. No, and that, that happened a lot in the... 
It happened all. It happened all over. It's the still US. happening to some extent. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's, it isn't over yet, and it was particularly uh, horrendous in Arizona and in and in Nevada. And in Arizona, here's another here's another uh, aspect that uh, that hits you. And people don't uh, readily uh, reference. Arizona passed uh, a, a, a nationally uh, uh, infamous uh, law, SB 1070, that, that dealt very, very uh, unfavorably with, uh, with immigrant workers in the state. It made national news across the country. As a result of that, Arizona's economy suffered horrifically. And, uh, and a little known fact is that hundreds of thousands of Hispanics moved out of the state of Arizona. So those of us that had lots of rental properties suddenly couldn't give a rental property away. And uh, and that was on the residential side. On my office building, businesses began to fail. People began to default their leases. And suddenly, you're faced with, you're faced with, uh, with that and the lack of liquidity to see yourself through. And to this day, I mean, uh, Arizona is still ripe with, uh, with empty office space that they can't give away. So well, that, that probably won't change in the, in the foreseeable yeah, no, future. It, no, it won't. But, the, but these things all combined right. to exacerbate uh, uh, the uh, the Ponzi situation. It was it was as I say. I I've, I've begun to look at it kind of as the, the, the perfect uh, uh, financial uh, storm that uh, you know this destroyed me on on a number of sides. So. Um, well, if it destroyed you, you've done a pretty good job of, of resurrecting. I mean, you've managed to write a book that, as I told you, I've read twice. Well, I, used, I, I should have. Uh, that, that, that was some, a, you've got that, some therapy out of it, and you've uh, provided a warning to others about Ponzi schemes. Yeah, I hope I hope I have, and and uh, and I think that's a, that was that's a huge growth uh, uh, that I've made at this at this ripe old age in my life. I think I did. I used. I just said to you that that it destroyed me. Well, uh, you know, I need to back up on that a little bit because that's a that's a very easy uh, uh, group of words to uh, to use. But the fact of the matter is, is I'm not destroyed, am I? And that's a huge message. In in in, uh, in the novel. Well, you seem to have resurrected. It, yeah, the the uh, money is money is one of the great lies of our time, and it's very easy to define yourself if you've been fortunate enough to make a fair amount of it, which I was. Uh, I, I mean, I don't don't I don't want anyone to look at me and say, "Oh, poor R. P. McCabe," because there is no "Oh, poor R. P. McCabe" here. I I worked hard. But I was very lucky too, and I was very fortunate. And for the, the overwhelming uh, majority of my life, my wife and I lived a very storied life. We were very, very fortunate people. We had all of the toys. We had the nice home. We uh, we had the nice cars. We went on the wonderful vacations. I've traveled all over this world. I have no right to sit now and and uh, uh, and sing a song of woe is me. Well, I, you're a very uh, honest man as an author. Well, uh, I, I if if, uh, if a writer isn't going to be honest, uh, I, I think I think he or she is not going to be very successful. And I then that's it, that's kind of our our job, if you, if, it, for it one is. of a better phrase, it's our job. I'd better stop here. Um, 
Thanks, Ron. I just wanted to thank you for your honesty uh, here on the New Books Network. I've been talking to Ron McCabe about his book, Betrayed, which is currently available in print or ebook on Amazon, and I gather will be released in the new year through Barnes & Noble and other retail outlets. Thanks very much, Ron. Thank you for having me on your show, Al. I deeply appreciate the opportunity to talk about Betrayed and my story. Thank you. Thank you.